Hi, and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hare. And I'm Joe Hellerstein. Today on the podcast, we welcome Sailash Krishnamurthy. I've had the pleasure of knowing Sailash for a long time, and he has a storied career in uh, the database industry in Silicon Valley, going back to his salad days at IBM. But I get to know him because we managed to recruit him out of IBM to do a PhD at Berkeley, or rather he applied, and we were lucky enough to get him. Um, and Sailash worked on some of the um, foundational work on streaming databases in the Telegraph project with us at Berkeley. And then he took that out with colleagues and spun out a startup called Treviso, which he sold to Cisco. Um, and since then, Silesh has transitioned into being one of the key engineering leaders in the space of cloud data management and cloud databases, both at Amazon Web Services and at Google. So welcome, Silesh. It's awesome to have you here. Thank you so much, Joe. And thank you, Jeff. It's, it's always great to talk with all of you. I was hoping that we could just start by you rattling off the names of some of the cloud database systems that you've been uh, an engineering leader for. Well, uh, right now, I lead engineering for three different database systems, uh, Spanner, Bigtable, and Firestore. So these are the heart of what we call our cloud-native database portfolio at Google. Uh, but I actually have two jobs here. So I have one of them, which is the uh, engineering responsibilities for these services for external consumption. Uh, but we also have uh, versions of Spanner and Bigtable that are the heart of all transactional storage inside Google. Uh, and you know, our, we publicly talk about how uh, this powers over 1 billion QPS. Uh, the number is well north of that at, at this point. But these are the massive databases that underpin uh, all sorts of internet services at Google, uh, whether it's media services like YouTube and photos, uh, classic enterprise applications like ads and payments, uh, or even you know the storage systems that are used to store the web crawl. Uh, and uh, I, I think the scale of uh, relational databases that we're talking here is really something that the uh, world hasn't seen before. Uh, and so that's my most recent experience. Uh, prior to my time at Google, I was at AWS, uh, where I you know, worked on uh, a set of uh, relational databases again, and these were uh, Amazon Aurora, uh, as well as managed MySQL databases. So this is RDS MySQL and RDS MariaDB. Uh, and you know, again, these were interesting services because Aurora was one of the fastest growing services in AWS's history. RDS, you know, is a very uh, widely used service, very big service and old service had its set of legacy. Uh, and so uh, it was interesting challenges with both a very high growth service uh, and a more uh, mature, more stable, but very large service. It's really actually pretty amazing to hear about. I've heard some of these rumors about uh, Aurora being the fastest growing service in AWS history, which is just remarkable when you think about it, um, given all the other stuff that goes on at AWS. And then when you talk about the scale inside of Google, I mean, we don't get to see that on the outside, but uh, we, we certainly get a sense of it. It's just phenomenal. You lived through sort of the the big data hype era, and you lived through it as Aurora was growing, it seems to me. And so I'm really curious what your reflection is on why SQL databases are back, and were they ever gone, or was that just um, a perception here in Silicon Valley? Oh, this is an interesting one. You know, I think if you look at just pure numbers and revenue numbers and things like that, 
I, you can, I think, argue the SQL databases never went away. Uh, they were always there, and their uh, you know, usage and revenue has only grown. I do think from a mindshare perspective, something big changed over the last maybe 15 to 20 years back. And to some extent, I think we in the database industry, uh, probably you can argue that we dropped the ball. Uh, we were so focused on the way we built our systems, uh, scaling up uh, vertically, that I think we did not see what was coming. Uh, partly it was people like Google and uh, you know who were, who were building these horizontally scalable systems, who were building it on commodity hardware. So there was a big you know, transition that was going on that the old you know, enterprise database vendors and I guess by extension, the database industry didn't, didn't quite internalize that, that transition, the technology change that was going on. I also think a second thing was happening. The way people built database applications, I think, has changed in, in a very significant way. Going back to the 90s, when back in the time when I was working at you know, IBM, you know, the way people bought databases, you know, the truism was you bought applications, you bought the ISVs, uh, and then you installed the application. And a lot of enterprise IT was mostly around, you know, wrangling that. Uh, but I, it's certainly a golden age for the developer. I, I, and, you know, this, this is actually a really, you know, much longer discussion than just the NoSQL piece. Uh, and I'm sure we can get back to it again. I mean, a great example is things like schema evolutions. It's, it's quite remarkable uh, how much you see uh, schema changes that happen today. I was talking to a customer a few years back when, when the penny really dropped for me, uh, when they told me that, in production, they run about a, a couple dozen schema changes a week. And I was shocked when I heard that the first time. Very different from the old enterprise world when schemas would mostly, you know, remain constant. I, I remember, you know, reading, you know, when I was in school talking about schema evolution as being that bit of an obscure concept. And, you know, it, it really isn't. It's so it's, it's, it's so prevalent these days, uh, partly because people are building applications so fast and changing them so much. Uh, but also, I think object relational uh, mapping tools, ORM tools, have uh, re really you know, uh, come to stay. You have things like Active Record and Ruby on Rails. Uh, and people, uh, it's so easy for developers to change as they change their application, change the schema. You have these tools that generate database migrations that go into schema migration. And now there's a whole other set of problems because many of these open source databases don't do very well when you have to go and add, you know, add a column. Uh, with MySQL, for instance, that's pretty painful operation. So you know, databases get used by all types of folks, you know, agile application developers, like you've been talking about, but also, of course, data engineers, analysts, and we're beginning to see machine learning folks as well. So how do you think about serving all these different personas? So first, I think the you know the industry does uh, think of these different kinds of systems: analytic systems, uh, transactional database systems. I also think there is uh, people don't necessarily think of it that way, but data processing systems is, has emerged as a new third uh, third pillar, if you will. It's not just these two systems, uh, and a lot of personas that you talk about. Uh, ML engineers, where you have ML infrastructure, you have data processing pipelines. They all, I think, depend on a mix of streaming and other kinds of uh, systems, which I, I, I think you, we should be treating it as a third pillar. Uh, and, and that's one way of addressing the different personas you're saying, right? I mean, you have uh, the three pillars that, will, that naturally serve these different use cases, if you will. The three pillars, Silas, will you remind me what those are? I don't know that this is necessarily, uh, you know, something that is accepted or uh, well agreed on. Uh, but 
transactional analytics is how we've always talked about them, right? These are the classic ways of thinking about it. But I think there, the class of streaming systems where you're doing data processing on top, there's, I think, a lot of that that has happened uh, in the external world with uh, uh, various open source systems. Kafka, I think, is a great example. Uh, but one of the things I've taken away from my last, you know, uh, two and a half years at Google is looking at how people are solving data problems inside. And it's, you know, one thing that's hit home is that it's not just the transactional and the analytic systems. It's all of the data processing pipelines and all the other systems that are there. And they are crucially important when people build applications. Mm -hmm. The average application developer, they are trying to solve a business problem. It's, in, you know, it, it pigeonholing them and either you've got to do this in the database system, the transactional database system, or in the analytic system is doesn't really serve their purpose. And uh, I don't, uh, my point is I don't necessarily think that third pillar is generally thought of as an independent pillar. I think people tend to think of it as, you know, the glue that makes things go around. But it's, you know, I think it's interesting to start to think about what, what you're able to leverage by these kinds of systems in the middle. And I think one of the things uh, I learned from last several years working, you know, um, in cloud database systems is traditional enterprise data management vendors had the luxury of a sales process where we could say no more often. We could qualify uh, deals better. You know, you could have you would have the sales team that would help uh, direct customers to one of two pillars, if you will. I, I found time and again that we have a sudden very angry customer, and they're complaining about why your database can't do X, Y, or Z. Uh, and you know, you look into it, and it's because uh, they uh, self-selected to the wrong pillar. And now it's a little too late. We, you know, when the house is on fire and there are escalations that are going up the management chain and, you know, we are being held to explain why customer X or Y isn't happy. Yeah, I particularly come from the visualization world. So uh, one persona I, I particularly obviously invested in is that of doing you know, interactive um, ad hoc analytics. And so I'm particularly interested in um, how scalable backends can support highly interactive experiences with data. So basically requerying oftentimes in the order of milliseconds. And so I'm wondering what kind of demand are you seeing for this kind of rapid ad hoc analytics and how do you try to support it? So uh, in the analytics world itself, uh, you know, I think if you if you didn't worry about the liveness or the freshness of the data, um, you know, you you have the systems. I think modern systems, which are you know, figured out better different storage representations and columnar storage representations to you know to mm -hmm. make uh, these queries actually you know uh, run faster. I think the bigger challenge, though, when you have uh, when you try to open up interactive uh, you know, visualization workloads is when you start to open it up to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I have an anecdote from my time uh, in in Truviso, the startup that uh, we worked on. We are trying to push the idea of uh, real time data analytics and and stream processing. And so uh, we were we had a we had a customer meeting. It was this uh, logistics uh, arm of a big retailer. And, and they had so many data problems. I mean, they, they, they showed me uh, literally, this was late 2000, so th they had like, you know, a big boiler room full of people, you know, where, where uh, you know, every analyst had like a, a binder this thick and trying to figure out how to do fulfillment for stores. I mean, they had so many problems. But, you know, we were trying to sell them our software and we were trying to, you know, make this case that, look, you can, you know, buy buy going off the latest changes in data, we can give you visualizations that will help you understand uh, the latest state 
of of whatever SKUs are shot in whichever uh, uh, stores you are in. Uh, and you know the, the guy, the logistics guy, was you know all all ready to write a check. You know when the uh, crusty IT guy basically said, "Dave, what does it matter? Uh, your trucks only go out once a week." What does it matter with you? you know, it's sooner or later. Yeah. Interesting comment to make. And, you know, of course, we didn't win that deal. Uh, but I, I, I'm a li- little nervous always about pushing too much on con- on the on the currency part. I, I do think over time people do want fresh data. Uh, but I think when you start combining highly concurrent access with very fresh data, I think that leaves us into fairly open territory. I don't think the world has done a good job. There's mm-hmm. certainly various mm-hmm. kinds of systems that try to do HTAP processing. Uh, and I think it's an open, interesting area. Now, how important, you know, the business problem is, I always remember, you know, the, this guy's comment, Dave, the trucks only go out once a week. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm always a little skeptical about how valuable it is. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are many places where it is, but I would hesitate to say it's valuable for everyone. Yeah, I think we had this in a previous conversation, which is this, you know, spectrum between like batch to micro batch to true streaming and how many people really need true streaming. It's like, well, some do and it's but it's exactly as you're saying, it really comes down to to the nature of the business and the problem you're trying to solve. That's right. I think, um, you know, the another interesting trend of consumerization of IT uh, is is true. I think people over time you know, do demand the latest and the greatest. Just to recap what you mentioned earlier, there are these three pillars, right? Transactional databases, analytical databases, and you brought up data pipelines. So it's kind of three different product spaces, three different workloads. Totally fascinated by your point that you can't say no to customers in the cloud. Uh, never thought of that, never having operated a service myself and had to carry a pager and all that horrible stuff that you do. So, um, you know, uh, if the customer picks the wrong product, as you say, you're on the hook to help them. Is this going to drive us to convergent architectures? Do you foresee the cloud pushing to automate these decisions away for customers? I think customers really don't want to be in the business of moving data from one place to the other. I, I think they, they hate that. Sophisticated customers can put together data pipelines. And, other, and of course, there's a whole vendor, you know, history of ETL tools. And it's not, by the way, just, I think, transactional data going to the analytics uh, workload. All the lessons were there in the late 90s. We're just relearning them again. You know, you had the world of data marts, right? You had the data warehouse and you would take things out, data marts. It's it's a kind of similar problem. As soon as I start having to, you know, take the data out of that analytic system and back into some other kind of serving system, where's the governance, where's the lineage, how do you protect the data? All of these problems, you know, start uh, popping up again. So for the customer, I don't want to think about there's three different kinds of data stores. And what you're telling me is that the problem is too hard. Is that is that fair? I think what I'm trying to say is we are going to have as an industry to figure out a way so that customers don't necessarily have to move the data underneath the covers. Uh, There might be multiple systems underneath. I think that's the reality. Maybe over time we will change them. But my suspicion is that we will continue to have uh, these different specialized systems for different cases. Uh, but we will have to figure out how to make the data movement uh, transparent. And and there are, I think, interesting patterns around uh, disaggregation of uh, compute and storage is a real thing in transactional systems and analytical systems. And so there may be other, many ways to approach moving the data or being more 
um, you know, seamless. Or maybe, uh, Joe, I'll go back to one of your mid-90s projects, uh, Federation. Maybe it's back here to stay. Uh, we do have in Google, F1 is a federated query processor. It's extremely successful. So again, the 90s has taught us everything. We, you know, we just <laughs> got to go back to the time when we were all much younger. Let me push you on the, on the idea you proposed there, which I think is really interesting. So you're saying, look, from a technology perspective under the covers, you want to have multiple systems tuned for different workloads. But you imagine a world where there's some broker or some other intermediate middleware layer that hides that complexity from the user. Um, how far away are we from that happy day? We, we are not there now. I think that's, that's for sure. Uh, I think there will be, we'll probably come to this uh, happy day uh, in a set of steps. And I don't necessarily think we are looking at this as the end state. And instead, I think we are actually approaching it incrementally um, for better or for worse. Uh, and I, you know, I think even, even discussions of HTAP systems is, is another you know, example of actually approaching that incrementally. HTAP, uh, hi hybrid transactional analytical processing. So uh, the, the point being, you, you know, if you, certain kinds of layouts, uh, typically row major layouts are great for uh, transactional systems, but oftentimes, uh, you know, not ideal for, you know, for analytic systems. And, uh, and so effectively what happens is data being moved and massaged in, in different formats. Now, I think there are actually two big reasons why data gets moved and massaged from transactional systems to analytical systems. And one is because, you know, the schemas and the layout and the, the way the data is normalized or not is very typically different in analytic systems. And analytic systems often are laying out the data to show the entire history since the beginning of time, whereas transactional databases are more focusing on solving what is showing what is there now. Uh, but even from an implementation under the covers part from a you know physical uh, layout, uh, you know, you have the distinctions between row major and column major uh, layouts. Uh, column major better suited for fast analytical queries, row major better suited for transactional workloads. And so when people talk about, you know, HTAP workloads, I think, again, there's a continuum of, um, you know, I really want to run classic data warehouse analytics queries versus I really want to run reporting queries and I want to run them on the latest data, the currency, you know, part comes into play. Now, I think the, when people started looking at the HTAP space, my sense was that there was a lot of energy into how to make these systems you know, how to extract the best performance uh, out of a transactional system. But perhaps the more important question or more important objective as far as customers are concerned is how to extract acceptable performance without messing up your, your foreground OLTP transaction. So in other words, the core principle is you cannot afford to mess with OLTP. That's the line of business that's actually, you know, running. Uh, and yes, you want your reporting queries but it's okay if it takes a little longer, right? So if, if you take that prism, then the interesting problems are not necessarily moving the data, but really trying to offer, you know, different QoS if you want. How can I still preserve my QoS of my, of my transactional systems while starting to offer interesting performance for your analytical systems? And so you can address that problem uh, without actually moving the data, uh, especially if you have a disaggregated architecture and you want to decouple storage and you can decouple storage and compute, uh, then you can actually start to come at this, uh, you know, this kind of world where you're allowing these different sets of queries to come in uh, and, you know, isolating or doing workload management uh, and offering, say, a different QoS for them. 
but you could also come at the problem from another, you know, baby step, so to speak, that, you know, your data, you may have data in transactional systems and you want to virtualize it. Uh, you want to find ways to, uh, you know, uh, query the data in place or find ways to, under the covers, move the data. Uh, and so I, I think we are we are not really addressing this problem in a in a very real way yet i think as an industry we are all probably hearing the same things from our respective customers they generally i think customers don't want to be in the business of actively moving the data around uh, and so my sense is we are probably uh, uh, will will probably continue to take baby steps uh, maybe maybe that's the role of this third pillar to make this completely transparent uh, you know moving the data so I want to rewind a little bit back um, in that in the, earlier you mentioned about people's different migration journeys uh, into the cloud. And so I'm curious what kind of challenges you've been seeing for folks trying to get their data ingested or, or maybe put another way, what data wrangling headaches do you most commonly encounter? You know, I think um, if you if you actually talk about migration, people typically, I think, are going to uh, try to minimize the risk of migration. So uh, and so they try to do, for the most part, like-to-like migrations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's you know it's not necessarily not necessary that they always take on the challenge of both going to the cloud as well as changing you know the you know the way they organize the data. I have seen it happen at times. I've seen you know we've done, for instance, uh, you know massive forty terabyte plus DynamoDB uh, to Spanner and Bigtable migration. One of the uh, there's a big social media company. It, turns out in, in India called ShareChat, and they did this complex migration over a, a five to six month uh, journey. It was an amazing engineering effort uh, by our customer. And so they did move from, you know, different kinds of systems. And so uh, the big challenge that they had to solve for uh, was how to make sure the data was not lost, how to make sure the data uh, made it correctly. And so they went through, you know, this exercise of uh, making sure you are slowly moving the data, uh, making sure you are building extra checksums and monitoring of the data and data quality, uh, trying to do that at all times, pre and post migration, and having a way to go back. I think so that's an interesting example of the kinds of, not perhaps wrangling in the sense that you are talking about, Jeff, uh, um, mm-hmm. maybe more boring kind of wrangling, but more focusing on on data integrity and data quality. And so often a common failure pattern, again, apologies, Jeff, not quite data wrangling as you put it, but a common failure pattern you would see uh, is people will bring the data on, they'll do the stress testing and all that, but neglect to realize that this year's peak is significantly higher than last year's peak. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, they would have successfully migrated or successfully migrated, you know, scare quotes maybe five, six months back. And then, you know, we have the real problem occurs uh, at the time of, um, uh, you know, at the time when they have the next peak, right, which is maybe Black Friday or whatever it is. I think those kinds of problems I've I've seen. Uh, Recently, I was reminded of a, in retrospect, I think it is entertaining. At the time, it was very painful for me. Uh, We had a, we had a customer who was migrating from the cloud, you know, to the cloud. Uh, And so, you know, they, they had a migration from an on-prem database, uh, you know, um, database, uh, and so it was the usual pattern. You you back up the database, you set up replication, you catch up, and then you cut over, right? It's very, very common practice to migrate a live database. And so, you know, they did it because they were exiting from a data center and they were moving to the cloud. And so the database in the cloud was, uh, you know, had an active, 
you know, replication, the replication target, the source database was in the data center and it was, uh, you know, uh, it was connected and all of that. The migration happened, you know, maybe six months prior to the incident I'm talking about. Everything was fine. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the uh, there were uh, crashes happening in the database uh, that is running in the cloud. And, you know, it was it was a huge, complicated struggle to try to figure out where it was happening. It was, you know, it was some kind of a dead latch somewhere, right? you know, usual pain of these kinds of uh, systems. And, and then there was a bit of... Um, questions of why now? In fact, I think generally whenever I have an operational problem, I always try to ask, why now? What changed? Did I change something? Did we change something in the database? Did something change in the data, right? Is there, you know, different kinds of data showing up? Is it something changed in the customer? And, and the reality is there are so many moving parts, it's often hard to even find out, you know, why, what triggered it. And uh, there was some amount of finger pointing happening. We were, we were saying, well, we didn't change anything and they didn't change anything. And uh, it's entertaining because what actually happened was uh, the original migration happened six months prior. Uh, the contract with the data center ran out and the network connection stopped. So for months on end, the target database was happily, you know, every th 20 seconds or 30 seconds connecting to the source database, which still lived on the data center months past the migration. It would ping it successfully and come back and, you know, uh, not trigger this this code path which had a dead latch in it and all of a sudden when that source data data center could not be reached anymore because their contract ran out and the network connections got broken they hit this particular problem and so uh, I, I don't know if this is another you know good example of data wrangling but it's certainly database wrangling i think that we dealt with in migration no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, perhaps more directly on that the wrangling front, you know, earlier you said something really interesting. Not having a schema is a feature, not a bug. Can you expand on that? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, there's this whole class of column family databases. Bigtable is a great example of that. Uh, but then there are many other systems uh, in the vein of Bigtable, HBase and Cassandra. And so they all have you know, very, you know, different, uh, not, I mean, different kind of schema design. You have a key uh, and then you have these column families uh, for, for different systems. Very classic paradigm that you see is using these data, these kinds of database systems as integration hubs. Um, you will, you know, often, for instance, see that, uh, you know, for a given key, maybe a user ID, uh, different applications almost owning different column families. Right. They can operate almost independently. You might have, you know, an application associated with maybe, uh, uh, you know, impressions that a particular user has seen or some particular actions they've taken or maybe an ML pipeline going and running things. It, you know, there could be, you know, a whole bunch of these things. And I think the interesting, you know, part of these kinds of systems is uh, they give a lot of flexibility that you are able to operate independently, again, with the common assumption of a single key and you know you have time oriented data and the reason i think that is interesting is uh, you get both that flexibility so that applications can operate kind of differently uh, but at the same time when you start to think from an analytics perspective when you want to put together all these diff what these different transactional applications did you can very easily grab together you know the payloads associated with the different applications so in that sense you know, if you were to, in fact, take a very traditional, uh, you know, relational database design, you would, you know, have to design a schema, you'd have to make it work with many different applications. And then there's the cognitive load or tax, if you will, of 
people designing the ideal schema and then trying to find out how to evolve it. Uh, and so systems like this, I think, you know, are are great when you're trying to put together data when you don't know upfront the nature, the details of these, you know, of the different payloads. And you see more and more of that coming in with JSON uh, data types. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, going back to the vein of we did we did everything in the 90s. Uh, you know, there's object relational databases. Uh, there is a South Park episode that that goes, uh, the Simpsons did it. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's very meta because every point of time they talk about, you know, it was, it was done in the Simpsons. But, but yeah, uh, you know, object relational database talked about, you know, we talked about having all these abstract data types and having, you know, column types with, with structure in them. Uh, and I worked on some of these and, you know, uh, they never took off, I think, commercially. Uh, but, but they are here now today. People, you know, do use, uh, you know, these JSON columns and they use it primarily for flexibility where uh, they don't necessarily know upfront. And this is another, I think, way to address the, the schema evolution problem. In fact, inside Google, you know, there's a lot of use of Spanner where people stick protos uh, in, 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 and treat it as a key value store in that sense. So, uh, so this is real. And I think not having schema, you know, uh, uh, being schema-less uh, is, and not forcing schema, not requiring schema is, um, is uh, certainly a, a feature, not a bug. I think the interesting challenge comes when, you know, you want to be able to start querying this data. Uh, you want to be able to do it without pulling the entire payload. Uh, and, you know, how how do you go and index the data? How do you do all of that transparently? I think uh, that's an area where we have, I think, a, you know, a long way to go. All right. So, Selach, um earlier you started to get into some serious database engine plumbing, I know, and uh, we could probably geek out on that a lot. But, but maybe you can explain some things to me like I'm five here, okay? So, you know, in the cloud, we have as many computers as we want, right? So, um that sounds like that makes life easy. Uh, what, what's hard about getting these database systems to work in the cloud? Particularly, like, if, if I had to remember one thing about the challenges you overcame in the engineering of these big cloud databases, what, what was the biggest lesson? Probably the single biggest lesson is um, around, around the different failure domains that you have. Uh, you are, when, when you have a very large amount of data, uh, by definition, almost by definition, you cannot have them all in a single machine. And so, you know, then what you need to do is start figuring out how to chop up the data into different pieces. Once you chop up the data and then you start smearing it around kind of on a different, on a wide footprint, because you have a lot of, you know, machines, uh, you have another set of problems that have, because now you have to deal with, with failures. And so in the cloud, failures are, like background radiation, disks fail, switches fail, things fail all the time. It's a it's a fact of life. And when things fail all the time, you know the question is how are you going to you know how are you going to uh, adjust for it? And the standard way in which you deal with failure is to replicate the data. So so you start off with saying, well, I have too much data to fit in a single you know machine. Uh, so I start to you know partition the data, I shard the data. Again, I'm not trying to be specific on any one system, but you know, as a common theme, you have to partition the data and then you have to replicate the data. Uh, and then once you replicate the data, then I think you start running into into challenges in terms of how do you consistently replicate the data. So I think this is the 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 big thing for me in many ways, big takeaway in the cloud is that uh, it's not just that there's a lot of computers. The interesting question is how these things are configured. But you know, I was talking to a uh, to a customer recently, and they talked about how uh, the database is only 
you know, a, a tenth of their overall footprint. They have this big compute footprint uh, on top. And when they have such a big footprint, one of the big challenges is capacity. So, you know, when we talk about availability and high availability uh, and regional and multi-regional configurations, it's, you know, cloud vendors will typically tell you, and you can look at our availability numbers, regions fail very, very rarely. They, they you know, we, we actually do a pretty darn good job, although maybe self-serving of me to say this. Uh, but the, the interesting challenge in some ways is capacity. Uh, you have runs on capacity and you have challenges there. And so uh, this particular customer I was talking about, uh, they would like to go from an architecture where they have uh, a small number of regions with a lot of capacity in each region to an architecture where they have a large number of regions with data replicated across all those regions. And they'll take the cost of replicating the data and storing it and all that just so that the capacity that they need, the compute capacity footprint they need on each region is smaller. So they would have a larger number of regions with a smaller number of compute capacity uh, so that their biggest availability vector that they are worried about is not so much failure of a region, but a lack of capacity. So um, I don't know, maybe a, a slightly less long-winded answer to your question. I think it is uh, when you have lots, when you have lots of systems, you have to worry about you know operationally, uh, you know, uh, capacity and and how much is available. You have to worry about partitioning the data. You have to worry about replicating the data, and you have to worry about keeping all of this uh, inconsistent. So. Uh, when you crack open each of these, I think you know there's tons of interesting work to do. Yeah, there's no uh, no question that uh, you know these kinds of problems are are problems you can work on your whole career. Big stuff. So, Silesh, I understand you're something of a, of a history buff. What are some interesting uh, history resources you've been looking at recently? Uh, I, I more than just history, I like to read about uh, you know, civilizations' uh, rise and fall, uh, and uh, I. In addition to reading books like Jared Diamond's uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, I have gotten on to this interesting podcast recently, uh, The Fall of Civilization. So I think it's uh, I think it's a really great podcast. Highly recommend it. Uh, great fun. Okay. Shout out to our friends at that podcast. Thank you for joining us, Silesh Krishnamurthy. It's been awesome having you on the podcast, getting to spend time with you again. Uh, to our listeners, if you have a question or a topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. As always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. On behalf of Joe Hellerstein and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time.